eternal security. Um, when we've talked about the last couple of weeks, we said this. We have made observation that we can know. And again, if you're doing a Bible study, and a lot of people don't know this, you can know that you have eternal life. There's a lot of churches that say you never know, you can hope so, but according to the Word of God, we can know. In fact, the Word of God says that if you have doubts, it gives a whole section, a whole book almost, committed to the idea of making sure you know that you have eternal life. And we talked about these already, the uh, fruits, the tests, the, the uh, vital signs of whether or not you were born again or not. We, um, we don't know. The one thing I don't know and you don't know, we don't know if others are really saved or not. We, we can talk to somebody, we can ask them, we can show them, but the best we can do is we can take them at their word. Because we don't know, truly did they get born again? Or we can judge them according to the fruits, but that's the best we can do. And we would be surprised, and we probably will be surprised when we get to heaven, that there are some people that we didn't think were saved, could be, but they were like righteous lot, okay? They were backslidden, or they were, weren't serving the Lord. And then there's others that we might be surprised that they aren't there. It's going to be between them and the Lord. We, cannot, we can only present the truth, take them at the word, judge their fruits, but... We know there are cases, and this is important thought, we know there are cases where people can and have followed the crowd but are not really saved. Can you think of any Bible instances or points of teaching where Jesus said people might follow the crowd for a bit but they're not really born again? Can you think of any instance like that? Did Jesus, one of his 12, okay, did he follow the crowd? Did he fit in? I'm talking about who? Judas, okay, and he's condemned, and Jesus said better for, for him never to have been born. Um, Jesus, when he gives the parable of the soils, okay, he talks about how some will hear, and for a short period of time, they might give a little bit of an evidence, but all of a sudden then they're, they're, uh, the weeds, the tares, different things will all of a sudden take them away. And that's why he says that many will say to him in the last days, Lord, Lord, have not we cast out the demons, prayed in your name, but he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so he's going to make it very clear that at that point that there are some who say in this life they're saved, but they're not. In fact, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, that he talks about that there's the mixture of the tares within the wheat, and in that parable, the farmer say, should we go out and pull out the tares? And he says, no, it'll be done when? That there will be the separation. Okay, yeah, it's going to be at the harvest time or the judgment day. And so there are individuals that we don't know. We can't, we, we aren't God. We don't know if they're really born again. But there may be, they are going through the motions and maybe they really never repented of their sin. Maybe they're not totally relying upon Christ to be their Savior. The illustration we used a couple weeks ago about a chair, whether you're totally resting in the chair or leaning on it and trusting yourself. There may be individuals like that. Maybe they're just trying to follow the crowd to fit in because this is the thing to do. This is where their friends are. This is where their relatives are. And so they try to follow the crowd or maybe they want the benefits without the belief. Maybe they, they want to be able to have the, the uh, experience and, and, and this happens. Some will say, hey, I want a good family experience. In fact, there are some different groups, cultist groups, that they advertise based on family to draw people in. You think, think of what I'm thinking of? 
The Mormons, okay, their advertisement is that way. And so maybe they want those benefits, but they really, really, really never had the belief in Jesus Christ. The, the fact is, we know there are cases when some hear the word for a while, and then they fall away, because they never truly were born again. We read about this in 1 John chapter 2, where he makes that comment in 1 John 2, that they were, went out from us because they be not of us. These are biblical answers that we say, well, how do we know for sure about somebody else? We don't. Okay, it's between them and the Lord. We can judge by their fruits, but we know that some people will fall away. Some people will not respond. But we, our obligation is to give out the Word of God. And we do know this. We know, let me, let me preface this. I should have put one more statement in. Once we get born again, can we still sin? Okay, do we sin more than we want? Okay, when will we reach perfection where we never sin? Yeah, when we get to heaven. Okay, so we do know, and here's the flip side, we do know that even backsliders, carnal Christians, were called brethren. Okay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 it says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto fleshly or carnal individuals. But he called them brethren. So is there a possibility that some people who are living a carnal life aren't really born again? Yes. Is there a possibility that some are living a carnal life and they are saved? Yes. Okay. And uh, so the Word of God tells us about that. So we know this is, the, this is a fact. That once a person truly gets saved, they are saved for good and forever. That's the doctrine we're talking about. This is a very important one. When you're doing a Bible study, you want to make sure that the individual understands that they, they don't doubt. Otherwise, they say it didn't work for them or they get discouraged and they, they say, I don't have complete victory over sin. Well, that's a process of growing that they'll get victory over sin. But they need to understand that once saved, always saved. And that's the doctrine that we call eternal security. Again, it's not a term in Scripture, but neither is the Trinity, neither is Christmas, neither is you know some of the, the Sunday school isn't a biblical term that you would read. The rapture isn't a biblical term you read, but the concepts are there. Eternal security concept is flooded through the New Testament. What it means is we cannot lose our salvation. It means that once we are genuinely saved, we are always saved. What it means is that when you got saved, the moment you prayed and repented of your sin and asked Christ to be your Savior, that at that moment, He gave you eternal life that was irrevocable, that God would not take that back. How do we know that? We've been going through and answering that question through several different portions of your book. And on page 18 if you have the book, it gives you a, a paragraph about this, how salvation is all by grace. There was another section that said that when you got saved you became a part of God's family. As part of the family to become, he gave them power to become the sons of God. You went into a relationship with God Almighty that is like your family relationship, your biological relationship, that it is irrevocable. irrevocable. It is one that will last for... Oh, by the way, let me ask this question. Do we know our family relationships in eternity? Do you remember the rich man who, had, who was in hell? What does he remember that he has back in heaven? He has the brothers and he wants them. So well, let's not be mistaken that when we go into eternity that all of a sudden our mind is erased and we don't know people. We don't understand people. We still have recall. In fact, people in heaven, according to Revelation 6, still knew what was going on in the world and they were saying, God, why, the, why are you delaying in judgment? We remember how we were persecuted and killed. Would you, uh, would you take vengeance upon those who are persecuting the brethren? They, there's remembrance. There's recall. It doesn't mean that we walk in 
into eternity and we maintain the same relationships, but we have recall. We remember and we'll know those situations. Just like the disciples, when they saw Elijah and Moses, they had never met before, but they remembered them. So our relationships that we have, they are relationships that in that sense, they have any, they, once we, we in our family have a relationship, it is lasting and lasting and lasting. So too is our relationship with Jesus Christ when we become his brother. He, God becomes our father. It is a lasting relationship. We talked about last week about being in Christ. This is a whole doctrine that you could do your Bible study and knowing that you are in Christ. And we made these observations. Being in Christ means you are in him. He is in you. There's a spiritual connection between the two of you. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ because you share with Christ his righteousness. As he took your sin, he imputed to you his righteousness. And so we made these observations that this terminology in Christ has legal, it has positional, it has practical, and it has a forever position. And so if you're dealing with the Bible study, you're talking about being in Christ, you might show these verses that those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation to them. You might talk about that those in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You might talk about and point out verse that, therefore being, having been justified once with ongoing results, that's that idea of a perfect passive participle, that idea that it happened in the past and it continues on. Just like you got married, it continues on. You became a parent at certain moment in time, and it continues on. This is the idea that we were justified, not by what we do, but by what God does. And that idea that we used as an illustration last week was the cities of refuge. You could run in, and there was safety for those that that were found um, uh, guilty of manslaughter, accidental deaths, that they could be there. So too Christ is our city of refuge that as long as we're within him. We used the other illustration last week, just to remind you, you may want to put it in your margin, that in the Old Testament days when they did the weddings in the Jewish culture, the man would take off his garment during the wedding, put it over the bride's shoulder, and then everybody looks at the bride and they would see that she belongs to him, she is in him, protection, provision, all those things, an illustration of a permanent relationship that was established between us and Christ. Let's get into where we stopped last week. We were talking about being kept by the power of God. Okay, We started talking about a biblical term. You will read this in some of your theologies, that there is the doctrine, especially in a group that's called Calvinism, their P will be perseverance of the saints. Okay, which has the idea that what it is is that the teaching is that genuine believers will persevere until they are with Christ in, the, in heaven. We believe that there is some, some aspect of truism to this, that true believers should persevere as a whole. True believers will live godly as a whole. But we do understand that there are sometimes carnal believers. Are they still born again? Are they still saved? Well, there's another way of phrasing it that would include and, and basically understand the concept better is not perseverance, but preservation. That it's, The idea is that God preserves all who are genuinely saved. It's not up to us, but it's God who does it. Okay, that God preserves even sometimes those who are his children, truly born again, but they are walking away from him. The reason I say that is because of this. Okay, that he, the Bible teaches this that there are individuals like Lot. Lot 
is talked about in, in Peter's comment in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, righteous Lot. But Lot wasn't living a righteous lifestyle, but he is saved. He is kept by the Spirit of God, and that's that whole context, that even though he wasn't always living for the Lord, he was declared righteous. Well, who kept him? Lot? Did Lot persevere? We would say no. But he was preserved by God's work. In fact, we already looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, carnal Christians, fleshly Christians. Okay, and if you look at the text, he talks about different groups of people. There are spiritual, there are carnal, and then there are those of the world who aren't even born again. So within the Christian community, there are spiritual Christians, there are carnal Christians. And he calls them brethren that even though they have gone against the Lord, they are per- preserved by God Almighty. Then we have the teaching in the scriptures that when somebody is truly born again, could they walk away from the Lord? And the answer is, they could. Is that a norm? No. But could somebody walk away from the Lord? And if they do walk away from the Lord, what does Hebrews 12 teach us God does? Does he, does he say, you're out of my family? I want nothing to do with you. I've taken away your sonship with me. That is not what Hebrews 12 teaches. Hebrews 12 says, whom the Lord loves... He chastens. He corrects them. And it goes on and it talks about in that passage that if somebody doesn't have chastisement, then they are what? They're they're an illegitimate child, and King James would use the word bastard, that they aren't really belonging to God. And so there is this teaching that even in 1 John, that there is a sin unto death even for the Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that some who took communion wrong, they were sick and some sleep or have died, is the point. So those individuals who are walking away from the Lord, rebelling against the Lord, do they lose their salvation? The answer is no. They get correction. They get correction. There is no condemnation, but there is chastisement in this lifetime. And so we would make the conclusion that spiritual discipline, physical spiritual discipline, occurs only to God's children, as we quote here, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all who are his children are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. And so the point is that an individual who is God's child, truly born again, could they go wayward like Lot did? Yes, they could. But they are preserved by God, but that means then God will correct them. God will chasten them. And so this disobedience that they conduct doesn't get them kicked out of God's family, but rather the disobedience, they get correction. So the idea of losing your salvation because of carnality. That contradicts this whole, this whole teaching on chastisement. Once a child, always a child. And just like they are your children, if they do wrong, they, they offend you, they, they break your rules, you don't say, I'm taking them back to the hospital and returning them. Now, you've had those moments where you thought about it. Okay? But that doesn't happen. They're your family, and what do you do? You correct them, you try to deal with it, that's what God does as well. And so this idea of being in Christ includes, that, or being kept by God, includes the idea He will preserve us. It's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon Him. First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 5, let's look at it. We, uh, it's talking about who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. First question we have to ask, looking at the verse, first question you have to ask is, 
who are the who in this verse. And so it might be helpful if you have the passage just to be there and to look at it. The who in this verse who are kept by the power of God are mentioned. Paul, Peter says it is himself. He uses the we in the previous verse. We and those who are scattered abroad. Okay? But he mentions, and so he's talking about a lot of different folk who are scattered by the, the Roman persecution. And he says that they are not only scattered, but he... And those who are scattered, begotten by Christ. What's the word begotten mean? Born, born by Christ. Okay, the idea of born again. And so the who in this passage are all those who are born again. The apostles and those who are scattered. And he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith. And so what is being done for those individuals who have lost their homes? And think through think through this passage. They've lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost their, their property. They lost their farms. They're scattered abroad. But the one thing they have is... Hello? They have their relationship with God Almighty. The one thing that they're kept secure until the last days. And so this text is talking about people who have lost everything. And the one thing that they have, they have their relationship with Jesus Christ. They are kept, they are protected. The idea is an ongoing, perpetual preservation that is going via the verb that is used in this passage. The point being God's power preserves those who are his. It's his work. It's not yours and mine. It's not our church. It's not the preacher. It's not your parents. It is the work of God that keeps us saved. God preserves true believers. That's the point of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's look at John chapter 6. And I'm going to have it here, but have it in your lap because we're going we're gonna to get rid of the screen here in a moment. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, he says. And him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He goes on. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, you have it in your lap. Let me ask you a couple questions, okay? According to the words that Jesus put here, what does he require of us? Okay, we need to believe. Anything else? Anything else in this verse? Okay, come to him. Okay, so we have those two ideas, okay, that we need to come to him with belief. Okay, this is what he's requiring of us. What I want you to see is there's two different parties involved, okay? We want to say what is our part, what is God's part? Okay, our part is we need to come to him. We need to see who he is. Okay, Romans 10 kind of puts it this way. We need to believe that he died, buried, and resurrected. Okay, see who he is and believe on him. Now, what does he promise to do? There are a whole bunch of things here. On the right-hand column, there are several things that he says, I will do certain things. What's he promise? What do you have that you can see right off the bat? He will not cast out. What else? He'll keep us. What else? He will raise him up at the last day. Anything else that he promises? Everlasting life. Anything else that he promises? He won't lose us. Anything else that you see? Now, you're sitting with somebody who, who does, who's, uh, you know, they don't know the Bible the way you do. Help them out by having them put on a piece of paper. Put down this list. This is our part. This is God's part. And then I'm going to ask them the question, like I did my wife when she was struggling with this and we were in college, is who can do their part better? 
Me or God? Okay? Here's God's part. You go through. He makes these comments. I will in no way cast him out. I will do the will of the Father. I will lose no one given to me. I will raise them up in the last day. They have everlasting life. I, and by the way, it's emphatic in the original. I myself will raise him up. Okay? So Jesus is being emphatic in these statements. How do you know that? Well, the word order... The idea that he keeps on saying, I will, I will. He repeats these thoughts time and time again. What is the bottom line understanding of this passage? If you do your part, he'll do his part. And how long does his part last? Okay, who preserves you? He does. Okay, it's clear. It's clear It's clear as can be. Okay, Paul writes in his passage about being kept. He says, For which cause also I suffered these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. Sounds like a song we sing. Okay? And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against the day. What is Paul talking about? What did Paul commit to the Lord? His life. Physical life? And spiritual. Okay, so basically Paul has committed himself, his soul, his salvation. He's committed to the Lord who is able to keep him until when? Okay, until against that day. That whole idea is that Paul is confident that he's being kept by God until the Lord's return. Oh, by the way, once you get into heaven, you're there. So when is the battle that if you could lose your salvation, which we don't believe, if it could happen, when does it happen? Okay, well, what, time, what part of your life? Between your salvation and you're going to heaven. Okay, and he is saying, God's going to keep me until that day. So who does, the, who does Paul, who, who's keeping Paul in salvation? It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Okay, he says this in Jude chapter, Jude chapter twenty-four. That's a big book. All of a sudden, Jude verse twenty-four. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. What is meant in this text? What is meant to keep you from falling? Hmm. 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 The word that is used only appears here in the New Testament. It's the only time it shows up. The word in this passage is talking about apostatizing. That is, walking away from the faith. That is, denying the faith. That is, recanting from the faith. It is the idea of going away, falling away from the faith. Okay, He is able to keep you from apostatizing, going away, denying your faith in Jesus Christ. Who preserves you once you're born? Again. It's Christ, okay? So he's talking about that, but here's, I, I think the key phrase isn't the keep from falling, but the what follows is gives you the whole strength of it. And to present you faultless, he says, that idea is referring to the time that you get to heaven. And when you get into heaven, he presents us, remember Ephesians chapter 5? That he is the groom, we are the bride, and he is working with us to present us spotless before, you know, before God Almighty. And so this context in this passage, the whole idea is, does God ever lose us? The answer is no. 
No, 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 no. God cannot lose us. Okay, if, so, so here's where we're at. The responsibility to keep you saved does not fall on me or you who is responsible to keep us saved. God, Jesus Christ. It's his job, not my job. Whoa. What a relief. What a relief to look at it. Because when I was struggling with that idea of I could lose my salvation, I kept on looking at who? Me and what I did and what I wasn't doing. And it seemed like I was relying upon who to make sure I'm saved? Myself, me. Okay? And so I had to rethink my my focus and say, it's not me that keeps me preserved. It's not me that keeps me persevering. It is the work of Christ and God Almighty. John chapter 10. If you've not marked the passage, take your Bible, mark these verses, put down some of the the umes that will show up in this passage, the most stringent, strongest way in the original language. And I love our English, and it's wonderful, but remember the Bible was written in another tongue, and it was a very vibrant language, and this is one of those most vibrant texts that you and I need to look at and say, wow, let's mark it, and let's kind of give the real sense of what he's talking about here. In this passage, he makes this comment, my sheep hear my voice, I know them they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. When I talk about an ume passage, ume is in the original Greek. It is never, 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 never. It's like um, he he mentions it twice in this text. It's almost like putting one of my professors says, put down, they shall never perish. Put that down like five times. They shall never, 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 never. When you say that to your kids, never, 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 what's that mean? Does it mean you mean it? Okay, okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. They shall never, never, never. It's one of those ume passages that is really, really strong, okay, in the original language. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. Let's, let's, let's dissect it, okay? You're doing such a great job doing this from, from time to time. How do saved people prove that they belong to him? According to this text, what are evidences that they're truly born again? Okay, they hear a voice... They follow him. Okay. Have we already said that there could be some exceptions to the general rule of backsliding? Have we said that? Okay. Uh, Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is something different. Okay. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is denying the conviction of the Holy Spirit whatsoever would be rejecting salvation totally. Okay. Um, Could a Christian become carnal? And walk away from listening to his voice by choice. We know that that happens because there are those, those few cases mentioned in Scripture. General observation is the sheep hear the voice and they follow him. Okay, so we have that they hear, they recognize who Jesus Christ is. And by the way, if he's calling you, what, what is that idea of you hear his voice? What, what's happening in you? Okay, yeah, you're listening to what? What type of things would be this calling? Conviction, okay? Convicting that you are a, you're a sinner. Convicting that you don't belong to him. Convicting that there's a punishment. And the Spirit of God is saying, hey, wait a minute. 
Come, come here. Uh, that's, the, that's the idea. The Holy Spirit, who, who is sent now as the new voice of Christ, the, the other comforter, all of a sudden he's calling and convicting, and so you respond to the call. They follow him. They do his bidding. This takes us back to one of those evidences. Remember in First John chapter 2? Uh, if you keep my commandments idea, okay, then you, you know, then you're, you know him and you're not a liar. So he make, he's making observations, okay. My sheep here. Now watch this. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man. Christ makes three specific promises in this text. You're sitting with somebody. They can understand this. It's very simple. It's clear. It's clear as glass. What are the three promises you see here that Christ makes to the person who says, I believe in him? He gives eternal life. Never perish. Okay, you got him. Okay, very simple. Very simple. Now, you're taking somebody through a Bible study. This isn't convoluted. This isn't confusing. You're taking them through, and you're pointing out, this is what the Word of God says. Okay, they get eternal life, and eternal life means how long? Forever, otherwise it's? If it only lasts a short time, then it's not eternal. Okay, it's not, not confusing. They shall never perish. We already talked about that. It's that ume idea. No one shall snatch them up. Who does that include? Okay, so you, several of you are saying it. It includes... Satan. It includes a church. It includes me. Okay. It includes all kinds of individuals because he says, neither shall any. Okay. And it's not a person, man. It's the idea of any creature shall pluck them out of, uh, out of my hand. Okay. My father, which gave them is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. What did you just notice about this in the previous verse? Okay. What's that, Rich? Okay. Comparing to God. Did you see any... Let me see if I can go back. Do you see any same thoughts? Let me see if I can do this. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then he says, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. What's, his, what's he doing? Okay. He's simply repeating himself. Does Jesus have a problem with stuttering? Why is he repeating himself? It's a very important truth. It's a very important truth. Okay? He repeats the same idea a second time. This is critical mass. He's saying to them a second time, stressing that who is the one that keeps us? God. God is the one because we are in his... And don't we want to... He's got the whole... We want to go that route. Okay? There is a reality to this that he doesn't have the whole world, but he has. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. There's a truth to that, right? And it says in this passage that the, uh, well, let me rephrase this. Okay, according to this text, who can take you out of God's hands? No one. Okay, let me, let me throw something at you. If, if it were possible, which he says it's not. If it were possible, what does this passage imply that if somebody could take you out of God's hand, what would they have to be? More powerful than God. That's his point. 
His point is, okay, I'm going to do this dumb, dumb illustration that I do at times, but if I were sitting with a, uh, with a baby Christian, I'm going to show them this. I'm going to tell them that sometimes we play a game with little kids. We take a coin, and I don't have a coin, so I'm using my pen. We put the pen or the coin in our hand, and that represents you in the hand of God. And we ask some kid to come up. Now, I choose very wisely which kid, okay? Okay, I pick a scrawny, small kid, okay? And say, come on up, and you take, if you get this, if you get this dollar bill, this coin, out of my hand, it's yours. I'll give you, and I put a time limit on it, okay? For reasons called, hang on to my fingers, okay? But I say to the child, go ahead and get it out of, your hand, out of my hand. Typically, and I've not yet had it, but I've had blood drawn, but outside of that, typically they don't get it out of my hand. And I ask them then, why couldn't you get it out of my hand? Their answer? Yeah, so I don't do this very often anymore. Their answer was, I'm stronger than them. And I ask them the next question. Could your daddy get this out of my hand? What, what do you think the kids always say? Yes, he just has to come up and you'll give it to him right away. <laughs> you'll pull. And the, the illustration is very simple. Who can take something out of my hand? Somebody bigger and stronger and more intimidating than I am, which is a whole lot of people. Okay. Who is bigger, stronger, more intimidating than God? Nobody. Nobody. Are you? Okay, so the, the, the point is very clear that the idea is there is nobody stronger than God. You know, we sing about how the, you know, God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. This is part of where it, it leads to. You are kept saved because God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. So the question isn't whether or not you could lose your salvation. The question is whether God can lose you. And you answer it. What is it? Can God lose you? No. Okay. Because God is able to keep you. God is willing to keep you. What we've seen, God, is, it's Christ's mission to keep you. That's really... It, th- these two last statements are really Im- impacting, powerful. It is his mission, his responsibility to keep you. If he doesn't keep you saved, then, then what has Christ just done? He's, then Jesus has failed to do the will of the... Father, oh my folk, this is just tremendous truth. Scripture clearly shows that God losing us is an impossibility. This is critical, critical, critical that you share these Bible truths. Okay, so here, let's keep on. We've said, how do I know I can be saved? Salvation's a work of God. You became a child of God. You are in Christ. Um, You are kept saved by the power of God. Here's one for you. God never stops loving you. God never stops loving you. Now you take your Bibles and you say, okay, I want to show you that nothing can turn God against me. Let's do, let's do Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is, the, this is that section that so many of you know, several of you have memorized, and it starts off with the major question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? He is writing to believers, okay? And he includes himself. That's the us, Okay, Paul and the believers. Who can separate us from the love of God? Any list. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Um, by the way, part of that is given for this reason, is do, do situations and circumstances in life, do they get people to doubt God's love? Yes. Yes. Okay. If, if people face bad situations, then the, the first question, Job's friends. First question, you got bad situations, it's because 
God's mad at you, you're a sinner. That's, you know, the disciples, who, you know, the man's blind, who hath sinned, this man or his parents. It's the natural, you know, corruption of truths of God that, that problems mean God is angry with you, God doesn't love you anymore. And he's asking this question, saying, who's going to separate us from the love of God? Can these things, okay, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than, anybody remember the word that's used here? Hypernike. Hypernike. We are super conquerors. Okay? And he goes on, through him that loved us. Okay, that's your key thought. For I am persuaded that neither death life. Now he expands from circumstances to include what? Not just circumstances, but creatures, other critters. Other part of creation. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ our Lord. This, now, now this is a sandwich uh, of truth. The bread on top, the bread on the bottom is all about what major thought? It begins and it ends. Can somebody or something separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, the middle part is answering the question. And so he's making this a really important thought, saying, okay, think this through, think this through. Now, just for, this is your information. This is for you who are the Bible scholars, okay? Remember the context. Chapters 1 through 3, all about sin, sinfulness of man. It's all about, you know, how all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Then he talks about salvation in Christ, Okay, that it is through one man that life, that salvation has come. So chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 7 talks about the struggles we have. Critical. Go to chapter 7 and look. This is the passage that says, you know, we are in, I find myself in a struggle. The things that I would do, I don't. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And then he says, who shall deliver me from this law of sin? Okay? And he's talking about how we still battle with sin in our life. And we still battle with those things. And then he goes to chapter 8, verse 1, right after he talks about how, how we, we battle, we struggle, it's a difficulty, and we feel like we're defeated. And he says, there is therefore now... No condemnation to them that are in Christ. And that's his great praise passage. Chapter 8 is a passage of security. It's all about security of the believer. That's the context. You have all about the sinfulness of man, the salvation in Christ. You have all about the struggles for the Christian. Then you have the security of the believers. Okay? And that's chapter 8. Actually, then chapters 9, 10, 11 talks about the security for what group of people? The Jews, okay, that they are still secured in the God's promises are for them. And then he, then he talks about the sanctified life uh, in chapters 12 through 16. Talks about how it's supposed to be showing up in our everyday life. How we, I beseech you, brethren, therefore by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The point being is God does not reject us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, even though we might be battling even though we don't always do what we're supposed to do, even though we do the things that we shouldn't be doing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he's mentioned some of those difficulties, but the answer is given. 
in the middle of the sandwich. He makes it very clear, no, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. We are hyper Nike through him that loved us. We conquer, we stay in God's love through Jesus Christ, not through anything we do. That's the passage. That's the context. And he makes the comments here and he repeats it that nothing towards the, the second the, the piece of bread at the bottom. He repeats the idea, nothing can turn God against us. Absolutely nothing. And he lists all these things, including creatures like the demons and the principalities, um, you know, whatever. That which is high in heaven, that which... And by the way, who's high in heaven that would turn God against you? Who's in heaven right now? Satan. And what's he do in heaven? He's an accuser of the brethren. So he's talking about all these different powers and what they can do. And again, this is a very emphatic passage that talks about nothing. It would be, it would be like somebody buying somebody off the auction block, freeing that person, and then later on saying, oh, wait a minute, I decided that I'm going to undo your freedom and I'm going to sell you just to be cruel. And we would say that that slavery issue in American history, that was an awful thing already. But for somebody to have freed and then go and then take them back and then resell them, that would have been horrific. Our God is not horrific. Our God is not a cruel, heartless deity that would put us back on the auction block. He is a loving God. In fact, Jeremiah, and you can look this up in your book, it talks about this aspect that God's love never ceases. It has no limits, has no boundaries. And so you have that idea. Okay, We can talk about all these different thoughts. Let me just move on. Can you lose your salvation only if God stops loving you? And what did you just say? It's not going to happen. It's not because you're so wonderful Excuse me. It's not because I'm so wonderful, okay, because you know I'm not, and you know you're not. God loves us because he loves us. He chooses to, okay? And so it's all about him. Let me give you one other thought here, okay? God moves into you. When you got saved, the moment you got saved, God moved into your body. This is, this is an amazing thought, that God lives here. Wow. Wow. Okay, let's, let's develop it. First Corinthians chapter 6. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. What does this verse call you if you're a believer? What is your title? You're a temple. Okay? You have become a temple. Now remember... Remember, in Bible days, God had two different tabernacle and temple. They were both his dwelling places, that he would be there, and they would have the Shekinah glory that was a visible representation. And his intent was that these weren't going to be the permanent temple. The permanent temple would be in heaven. These were replicas. That's talked about throughout the scriptures, that they, that they duplicated, he, especially the book of Hebrews, that Moses, Moses gave you a duplication of the real temple in heaven. And so so in the, in the Old Testament, this idea of God dwelling in you, it's changed in the New Testament. It's part of the new covenant that we talked about on a Sunday morning two, two, uh, two weeks ago from Jeremiah chapter 33. The new covenant, Jesus Christ says no longer is he living in a physical temple, but he's going to live within you. You who are born again, you become his temple, his, his place of dwelling. And so we read about that. And by the way, keep in mind that in the Corinthian church that says you are the temple of God, some of those people were called carnal. 
So the Spirit of God moves into all believers, whether they are, you know, pure or whether they are uh, believers who are struggling, He moves into all of them. If they're babes or if they're very mature, they are all a part, a part of His dwelling place. So the question comes, can you lose the Holy Spirit? Because if you can lose your salvation, that means that God has to take His Spirit from you to damn you to hell. Because His Spirit can't be damned to hell. Yes? No? Okay. So he has to remove the Holy Spirit from you. Okay. That leads us to this passage. And this one, you want to mark some things in your Bible. You want to mark them in your Bible study book. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit. By the way, the wording is not by, but it's with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the day of redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of God. Okay, the title that is given in this passage, the Spirit is called the Spirit of promise. He is also called the earnest of our inheritance. Earnest now, some of you fully understand because you had to put down what when you bought your house? Okay, and sometimes it's referred to as what money? Earnest money. Okay, let's, let's go back to Bible days. Let's go back to Bible days and let's understand what the term meant in Bible days. Okay, the word that is used here, which is the earnest. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the earnest. It is the word Erebon for whatever that is worth to you. But the definition is important. It was a commercial idea that I would give a pledge, a down payment. I would give a security to purchase a chariot, to purchase property, to purchase um, you know, something of great value. And so it meant when I put this money down that I meant to, yeah, to follow through, to make sure I buy it, to pay the rest of it. To, it's my promise money. It's my pledge money. And if I don't come through, what, what usually happens with earnest if you, if you bail? You lose it, okay? So God is saying, I'm giving my, my earnest, my pledge is I'm giving myself. And if I don't follow through, I'm going to lose myself. See the foolishness of this idea that you can lose your salvation? God would have to condemn the Holy Spirit. Then there's another phrase, the other area that it shows up in, in Bible days, in ancient Near East, is when you, and today we do this, today we give a pledge that I'm serious about going to want to marry you, so I give you an, an engagement ring. Okay, that's an Arabon. In Bible days it may not have been a ring, it could have been you paid, paid a form of a dowry. But it meant you were following through. You were committed to this. Even though we were not yet husband and wife, in the fact, in the Jewish world, when I would, if I were in that world of the Bible days, if I gave her this ring of engagement, it was so serious that I, if to break it, I would have to do what? I'd have to get a divorce. But we're not yet married. But that's how serious this was in their day. 
And so this pledge, this proposal, was a really, really, really important. So you're teaching this to somebody. Give them some of that background. Understand the culture. That this is the culture that the Bible's written in. So he's using terms that are in their culture that make sense to them at that time. And so the Holy Spirit is God's pledge to us that our inheritance, it's the promise, he's the promise, he's the pledge, that we are going to get that inheritance, that he's going to follow through. And the inheritance, we all know what that is. The inheritance is we're going to be where? In heaven. Okay, that's the point of the passage. So the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to you that this is a fixed deal that I'm going to follow through and take you to heaven. There is another term that is said in this passage. This isn't just earnest. He's not just called. But what does it say the Holy Spirit does? Okay, he seals us. He seals us. So let's just talk a moment about sealing. Okay, okay let's go back to Bible days. Did they seal things? Well, they did it oftentimes with a signet ring. Okay? They had a ring, and they would put the wax down, and they would... What did that show? What's that? Okay, that if this letter... If, if it's a letter? Okay, that this authentically came from me to Bob. Okay, what else might I seal? Put my mark on? Or do it? A possession. I was, do you ever do this with possessions? You put, you put your initials on them? I do them with my books. I put on my books, I put a, a sticker right in the front of the book. This book belongs to the library of Wayne Burgraff. There's a reason why I do that. Okay, it's a reminder that if somebody takes it out of my library, they return, they return it. Does it work? No. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. okay. But the, we mark things that show they belong to us. Okay? And so in Bible days, it showed ownership. It showed authenticity. It showed security. In fact, you remember the one case where the Roman Jewish officials, they sealed something to make sure nobody tampered with it. The tomb. Okay, they were trying to secure it. Okay, so they would do it for these reasons. So God seals us with the Holy Spirit, which means we belong to him, which means we're secure, which means we're his. And we seal stuff today. You could, you could use this situation. You could show things. Why do you seal the Coke bottle? Why do you turn the cap you know, once you open it? Why do you keep it? So yeah, preserve it, to preserve it. So we're preserved. Now, let me just conclude with these thoughts. The sealing happens when we get saved. That's what the text said. Okay, when you heard and believed. This is critical. Okay, it happened when you got saved. The sealing is a work done by God. It's not something we do or a church does. According to the text, the Ephesians text, the sealing involved God himself. The Trinity is active here. God seals with the Holy Spirit because you believe in Christ. The sealing means we are God's. We belong to him. The sealing makes us secure. The sealing means no other spirit beings can enter into us. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? No, we're sealed. We're secured by that way. This sealing lasts until we receive the promise of inheritance. That means it's going to last throughout this entire lifetime until we get into heaven. Okay, the sealing... 
concludes and brings us to this, that we cannot lose our salvation. Nothing can negate the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us, or God who seals us with the Spirit. It's an impossibility to lose your salvation. Thank God it's not up to us. It's up to him.